Welcome. I'm Sarah Lipton, and this is Genuine, the podcast. Produced and created by the community at GenuineNetwork.org. Genuine. Authentic. Genuine. 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 Genuine? Genuine. Hello, friends. Thank you for joining us for this pivotal fifth episode of Genuine. Today, I am aware that it has been one month since January 6th, which here in America is a day that will go down in history for so many reasons. It was, weirdly enough, also a day on which I had a profoundly sweet conversation with the renowned meditation teacher, Sharon Salzberg. And I know, as the progenitor of this podcast, I love all my episode babies, but I am particularly pleased with this one. In case you somehow haven't heard of her yet, Sharon Salzberg is not only a prominently regarded Western meditation teacher and New York Times bestselling author, but she is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, one of the premier meditation communities in the Western world. Sharon hosts her own podcast called The Meta Hour, and she has written many wonderful books, including Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection, and Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World, which I highly recommend you check out. I've been drawn to Sharon's teachings for many, many years, and it was not until talking with Carlton about the interview that I realized why it was such a deep honor and delight to share the space of an interview with her. As you'll hear in our interview, I wind up getting pretty personal, and she shares a series of astoundingly helpful insights. Oh, and she was also kind enough to spend a few moments guiding us in meditation. Mm, Lucky us! (laughs) Today you will also hear some luscious music that will accompany our listening journey. We've got Motion by Sebastian Zell and Phoebe Wu, who incidentally grew up next door to my father-in-law, who you actually hear in the intro to Genuine, as well as my beloved first cousin Joe Lipton from London, England, tickling the ivories and covering Adele's Make You Feel My Love. You will, of course, also get to hear Carlton and I dig deep, giggle, and yes, cry a little bit on our way through a conversation about my interview with Sharon. Oh, oh, and don't forget to stay to the end to hear the spectacular Justin Michael Williams to find genuine for us. But before we dive in, let's pause and take this moment to just be. Today, as we pause, I really want to encourage you to let yourself feel whatever is there. There really is no need to judge or blame, worry, or even question. I know it's tempting. I know that is how we are wired and that is what we tend to do. But please give yourself just this moment to be exactly as you are.
Hi, Carlton. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? Oh, I'm so many things. I'm going to say I'm here because I'm stealing that from you. <laughs> <laughs> that has been my word for 2020. And now that we are in the 13th month of 2020, of 2020 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm still using here. Right? Well, it's really accurate. Yeah. It incorporates for me this um, fatigue about the pandemic, mm-hmm. the ongoing relentless nature of being trapped right. <laughs> and, and I, isolated. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about this. I don't, I don't think that I have been somebody who has been really that concerned over the course of the first 10 months of the pandemic, but there's been something about shifting into this last month that has been really exhausting for me. And I've noticed it more in my body and in my mood. Um, and maybe even just, in, in, in showing up to work or to showing up to relationships or conversations, I feel just a little bit more fatigue and maybe less clarity sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm still trying to be here while still holding all of those things. I, me too. You can probably hear my children burbling in the background. <laughs> it's so relentless. <laughs> There's nobody else that we can be with. Right. We just have to be with ourselves all the time. So I'm aware that this episode we are calling <laughs> When You're in Hell, Keep Going <laughs> is dropping probably on February 6th, which is an interesting date because that's now one month since January 6th. And it just so happens that that was the day I had a conversation with Sharon Salzberg. But we didn't know what was going on in the Capitol at the time of the conversation. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if, you know, if you could share some of your thoughts about the potency of this date, January 6th. Yeah, I think it's going to be a date that's going to live with us for a really long time. Um, as somebody who works in higher education and thinks about students all the time um, or thinks about people who work with students all the time, I imagine that students will bring their curiosities Um, their concerns and maybe even some of their fears and their worries to classroom settings. Um, As somebody who lives in right outside of the Washington DC area, um, it's been feeling kind of heavy to be in this space. Um, Well, you know, I feel pretty, I feel distant enough. So there's some safety for me in that. While at the same time, it wasn't that far from here. Yeah. Um, And so there's a lot of um, worry and concern that kind of even operates in the background of my mind, if you will. Um, I think that apart from me of this whole experience though, and thinking about it and looking at the news and reading the articles, one of the things that's really been sticking out to me in this conversation is how people are wondering how this happened. Right. Or they're also wondering about the um, response that occurred at the Capitol building on the 6th and one of the things that's really been settling in my soul or in, in my spirit as, as both sort of like a human being, but also as a psychologist and as a scholar is wondering um, if people have really thought about how whiteness is a part of this conversation um, and not necessarily knowing if we have the capacity right now to name that whiteness was a part of this, right? Um, you know, there's a way that I think about this, especially from a psychological point of view, is that we talk about whiteness or white people, right? White bodies as being good or as being um, fair or as being blameless or as being 
um, benevolent, right? Or being protective. Um, and so there's a way to me that I think about the intelligence that was coming out from the FBI and other folks that was creating a story that didn't sound so benevolent or fair or good, um, but because you know most of our law, law enforcement people may see that story from a particular perspective, or there is a system of law enforcement that sees certain groups of people one way, right? And we don't generally see white folks as being dangerous um, or being capable of this type of sedition, um, that it may have gotten overlooked, right? Um, as being a, a source of real danger or a source of real terror, or even a source of, uh, as a real turning point in the, in the history of our nation. Um, and so I've been sitting with that, just wanting people to think more about how there's an aspect of this that is about whiteness and about white people and their bodies. Yeah, and the sort of brokenness of the perspectives around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I'm so curious what other people are thinking, you know, what our listeners are thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting, right, as we drop this episode, I invite people um, in a thoughtful way, right, to bring their own reflections to that question, right? How does whiteness or how does other aspects of identity maybe play out in this story? Um, I know that, you know, that that's a, that can be a piece that can be really difficult for people to talk about, right? So I'm just gonna invite people to be thinking about that in their own spheres of influence and how it is that maybe they can begin to have those conversations with people, right? And one of the things that we know that keeps people from doing that can be some shame, right? Um, and thinking about this interview that you did with Sharon Salzberg, you were really personal at the beginning of the interview. Um, I wonder if you can talk to the listeners and to me about what was your motivation for doing that and what was it like for you to do that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I don't know if I meant to do it, <laughs> you know, cause it was kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I did mean to. And I think that what I saw in the opportunity of the moment of the conversation was here's a human who has spent her life dedicated to supporting people on their journeys in unfolding their humanity. And here I am recognizing for myself this crucial aspect of my humanity kind of for the first time. And gosh, she might have some insights. (laughs) You know, she's like co-founder of the insight meditation society so i think it was like you know there was a if even if it wasn't super conscious on my part to ask you know share this with her and and do it in this public way of this interview i'm sharing there was a part of me that was like i need help you know like i'm suffering here i'm struggling here and i'm excited and curious because i'm recognizing that this new understanding has profound implications for my life has profound implications for how I lean into myself in a new way and support my children, Mm -hmm. support my family, support my community, support our listeners at Genuine, support our community at Genuine. Like I'm seeing how this ripple effect of my own epiphany around shame, which I share more with her in the interview. I mean, it's it's undoing me, which is painful (laughs) and messy, but is is kind of like the best gift, I think. I mean, I'm still in it, you know, frankly, I'm still in it. It's still really painful. Um, but I also 
I also trust that the undoing is a gift. And I wanted to offer the opportunity to our listeners to step into that bravery themselves. Yeah. You know, dealing with shame is really messy, right? And there is something about us needing to try to really be with it um, in the messiness of it all, right? Even as we sit here um, trying to do this podcast with your little ones in the background, right? (laughs) So so like, this is where we are and we're going to open ourselves up to this moment, right? Yeah. For me, this particular interview was, um, it felt really generative. Um, It fostered some creativity and some thought for me. Um, I'm going to invite our listeners as they begin to listen to the interview between you and Sharon Salzberg to be very present to the interview and to make note of what happens in their bodies and in their own spirits as they listen. Notice if you can those places where you might feel urges or sensations. Um, whether or not there is some tightening of your chest or some hunching of your shoulders or some grasping or even maybe the desire to look away or to listen away, if you will. Um, And then also to pay attention to any other insights or creativity that comes up for you. So with that, we hope that you will enjoy this conversation and we will talk to you on the other side. for being here with me, Sharon. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast today. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. So great to be with you. And it was such a thrill to get to meet you the first time for the Best Year of Your Life Summit. It was really, really exciting because I've known about you for forever and I've been reading your articles and your books and it's just delightful to actually meet the human that is you. (laughs) Today, I'd like to share a little tiny thing that happened, which is actually huge (laughs) for me. I've suddenly woken up just a few days ago to the realization, the recognition, the awareness that I've been hiding under a huge rug of shame. I didn't even know. And it's been going on for about 23 years. And all during that time, I was meditating. But meditation didn't wake me up to that. (laughs) So I think that I want to talk more about that because there's a sense of finally, to me, genuine makes sense. Why I'm creating this thing, why I'm talking to people around the world. And what happened, maybe just to share the story briefly, 23 years ago when I was 18, my mom kicked me out of the house for dating an older woman. I never was able to be out as a queer person. And I assumed the role of a heteronormative life It was a great setup for a long dive in the contemplative world, which I did, but I really never had any idea that all of my actions, all of my decisions, all of the ways in which I presented in the world were based on hiding the fact that I was suffocating in shame. Not even shame for being queer, but shame for the fact that my mom kicked me out. As I've been pursuing these conversations, I actually didn't know that. You're the first conversation I'm having since this realization. (laughs) And yet I see how I did know. 
because of course I was driven to have these conversations. I'm kind of like bumbling around here and telling you about this because it's blown my world wide open. I've been unraveling for the last few days and I'm also seeing how perfect it is that I have created everything I've created because now I get to explore and use all the tools and skills that I've learned, which is wild, actually. I always thought I was doing all everything for everybody else. But actually, now I get to do it for me, which will be for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Here we are together. And I'm wondering if you could share a bit from your perspective and your background, what this journey of becoming who we are looks like. Well, in a way, I think it probably looks somewhat different for different people. It's so personal. It's so individual. And in other ways, I think there are probably patterns that we can discern, which hopefully lead us to forgiving ourselves and being kind of more open-minded, open-hearted about everything we're going through. Like I'm thinking about Lo, these many years before you had your epiphany, when you were with no doubt sincerity and earnestness and looking at yourself and practicing introspection and all these things. And I think that something we don't tend to give ourselves enough credit for is that very often a significant change happens sometimes in terms of action, not in terms of the underlying root of the desire or the dislike or whatever it is that's provoking the action. And yet that's a lot. Like I've just seen people feel tremendously bad and discouraged because Mm -hmm. they say, I still get angry at my kids. It's still the same little provocation that gets me filled with rage. There are a couple of things that they don't tend to realize. One is they may be better at feeling the anger without acting on it. Mm -hmm. So that there are very real consequences in terms of their relationship with their children. And also that surge, that, that kind of overwhelmed feeling may last 20 minutes instead of 20 hours. It's usually not a leap from 20 hours to 20 minutes. It's a pretty gradual erosion Mm -hmm. of time. And those 20 minutes don't feel good. There are very few people who jump up and down with joy and say, wow, I was like consumed with rage at my children for 20 minutes. Not a joyful feeling. (laughs) No, but that's a big change in the quality of our lives. And so there are just lots of ways in which, you know, I've been teaching for so long now, that I just feel I've seen a lot of people go through a lot of stuff. And this is a very common thing that I think people make really even enormous progress that they don't necessarily give themselves credit for in these ways. So that was part of how I was responding to what you had to say. And and I think that with a deeply held pattern like shame, even though it feels like you've been driven by it your whole life practically, I think we actually go in and out of it. Mm. and that there are times when it's predominant and times when it's not. And when it is predominant, I think shame functions in a way that it has a kind of quality of inhibition. We hold back or we're hiding or hiding something about ourselves or something like that. But there are other times in life where we go forward, actually. And I think of that primarily because I was in California in uh, February which I always talk about now in the midst of, you know. Pre-pandemic, right? Pandemic. It was pre-pandemic. So it was like, I went somewhere. (laughs) I took a journey, you know, now in Massachusetts. But it was like, "Ah, it was somewhere. So I was there in February and I was doing a group in someone's living room. And 
someone in the group was a psychologist, and she said, the brain filled with shame cannot learn, which I found a fascinating line. I think if what we are looking for in ourselves or in others or in society is actually behavior change, Mm. we want the release of, of being different. What is the positive role of shame, if any, in that process? And that maybe is distinguishing shame from regret or remorse or, you know, just kind of feeling bad at things we turned away or actions we did. That makes sense. You know, we need that sort of scaffolding to move on. But with shame, it's more almost like a character judgment. It's about ourselves, not about a pattern or an action or an emotion or something like that. And I could see, you know, like then how do we learn when we're just sort of stuck in that state? And so I doubt that you have been completely stuck for 20 years or something, you know. That Um, resonates. We we move in and out of these states. And and it's important to understand, like, often the patterns we pick up like that are serving some purpose for a while. They're protective, they're self-protective, they're about survival, they're about something. When they no longer serve a function, they're just kind of a habit. It's maladaptive. It's not serving us anymore. But it's also a way of respecting the pattern and not feeling like we are bad and we fell into this bad way and it's Mm -hmm. all bad. Maybe worth letting go of at this point or working to let go of, but that's different. That's really beautiful. That really resonates. It's like uh, when epiphany happens. I've noticed over the years, there's a kind of like an apocalypse that happens right after the epiphany. And it's like the death throes of the recent discovery is suddenly done and you don't need it anymore because you've seen it. But it kind of is like, nope, 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 you're not done yet. And so it's that I find like the moment of epiphany is often like this ecstatic experience of, wow, oh, Finally, everything makes sense. And then everything collapses, but only for a time, as you say. And I think that that's for me and and I hope for listeners as they engage in some meditative practice, that's the skill of the mind can begin to see that and begin to see, aha, right. This is just what's happening right now. It feels terrible. I reject it with every fiber of my being. However, renunciation is the foot of meditation as is taught. It's that's what's going to turn me back to the path and to see this is only this 20 minutes, not the next 20 hours. This is only what is happening right now and what's next and that curiosity. So thank you for your reflection on that. Thank you. So I started with myself and I'm curious to open the conversation into relationship. As we look at and navigate all of our different relationships. We not only have our own messy experience to contend with, obviously, but we also have this opportunity to lean in and learn from and gain clarity about our own needs and somehow find a willingness to be vulnerable with others. So I'm wondering what you would say to listeners about that kind of shift, that shift of opening to vulnerability. Well, something I... I've been thinking about a lot lately and speaking about a lot is, is really kind of a version of that. One example in my mind is my friend Ramdas, who 
died just a little over a year ago now, but for the last, I don't know, 18, 20 years of his life was living in a wheelchair post a, a very severe stroke with quite significant changes in his speech and, you know, ability to find words and so on. And yet he was teaching. Uh, he moved to Maui at some point. And so to be with him or to teach with him or study with him, you had to go to Maui, which was fine. You know, so, yeah, not a problem, really. <laughs> not a problem. So, and I'd known him, I'd met him when I met Christian Das and other really close friends, January 7th, 1971, when I began my first meditation retreat. As of I, recording, that's what, 50 years ago tomorrow? Uh, yes, 50 years ago tomorrow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Happy anniversary. <laughs> Thank you very much. I knew it was January 1971, <laughs> and someone, you know, a few years ago reminded me that the course started January 7th. Oh, well. So I was like, okay, <laughs> have an anniversary. Uh, so uh, I'd gone to India to learn how to meditate, and I'd heard that there was this kind of immersion course, this intensive retreat happening uh, in this town called Bodhgaya, which is the town where the descendant of the tree said the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened. That's in Bodhgaya. So I'd heard that there was this immersion course and that it was very kind of practical and direct and like the how-to of meditation, which was exactly what I was looking for. So I went and it began January 7th. Teacher was S.N. Goenka. So I'd known Ramdas for a long time. One day I was sitting in Maui, I was sitting in the back of the room with like maybe 300 people and he was up on the stage speaking with all those significant pauses, you know, and things as he was searching for words. And and he said, the most difficult thing after my stroke, harder than the pain, harder than living in a wheelchair, harder than having this shift in speech, is having to ask for help. Right. And he said, it's the hardest thing and the most liberating thing of all. And having known him all those many years, I'd say, yeah, you know, he was always a helper. He was a giver. He mm. was a pioneer in giving. The first person I knew who worked with home from that spiritual world, who worked with homeless people, mm. the first person who worked with prisoners, the mm. first person who worked with people dying. And I knew he, it was very hard to like give him a gift or compliment him or something. It was, so he was describing himself. They felt quite accurately. And mm. he went on to say, one of my famous books is called, How Can I Help? Now I feel like writing a book called, How Can You Help Me? <laughs> and I would say, as would many people who got to witness him in some way toward the end of his life, it was like some internal barrier had dissolved. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost like love could go out and it could come in. And with that dissolution, mm -hmm. it was like he was just made of love and made of light. And he was in this extraordinary space for years. And I think it was actually that. It was like a wall had fallen inside. And, and he's really been my model in these very difficult times because I can see, you know, this has gone on for a long time. And yeah. It's hard for people to ask for help. You know, I hear that even in places with, say, a lot of services where the help might actually be available, a lot of people just aren't reaching out. and. It feels humiliating. But that's our conditioning, you know, that we need to be on top of things at all times. And 
yeah. and that it's somehow wrong or bad. But I think it's actually in our vulnerability that we find one another. If we could share that more, we would find the strength in that and the compassion in that. It's something I really do think about quite a lot these days. That's beautiful. Thank you. I love that line you just said, in vulnerability, we find each other. It's not, needless to say, it's not what is broadcast by the regular media world. It strikes me as well that this is connected to a topic I know you are fond of because of your newer book, uh, Real Change. So if this shift towards vulnerability, towards being genuine, towards you know however you want to frame it, if this shift is to occur, what does that look like from your perspective? How do we settle into ourselves to embrace the process of change? Well, for me, you know, just given my background, it, it begins with meditation in that it's actually a skills training, which also hopefully would make it more forgivable, you know, our lapses and our difficulties. Yeah. It's not a skill all of us were brought up with, well, perhaps some were, but to be with your feelings when they're uncomfortable and not to add on to that, you know, future projection and blame and, and that sort of rigid identification, like, this is who I really am. Nothing else counts. And to have the ability to observe your mind and just to observe, say, the difference of what you pay attention to. If you're, for example, in the habit of kind of evaluating yourself at the end of the day, almost like, how did I do today? And let's say you're in the habit of pretty well only thinking about the mistakes you made and right. the mm. things you did wrong and what was incomplete and and whatever, you can notice the effect of that kind of obsession or or fascination. And then notice what it's like when you ask yourself, anything else happened today? <laughs> yeah. Like any good within me? You know, and you just watch the play of attention yeah. and the difference that it makes. And that's not a suggestion that we be conflict avoidant or not look at what's difficult by any means, but just notice. Notice where we're stuck. Notice what's repetitive. Notice what it feels like when we have the daring to look at ourselves in a different way, from a different angle. And the same with others as well. I can't hold back this joke that's just burbling to my mind. There's an old Jew, some half Russian Jewish, so I have this very strong connection to that world and just published my first book kind of about that side of my family called The Harmony of Dissonance. There's a there's an old joke that the, there's a couple of Jewish ladies having a conversation at a restaurant. The waiter comes over and says, is anything all right? <laughs> I'm curious about the other half of your family, if half Russian Jewish. Mayflower. <laughs> it's a very weird combo. <laughs> it's a very challenging combo, actually, because there's the like very constrictive Puritan side, which goes back. I've traced that ancestry back to Queen Aoife McMurrow. A thousand years ago, she's my 21st great grandmother, and she and Richard Strongbow are the progenitors of the entire British dynasty, it turns out. So I'm like 2,000th cousins with the Queen of England. <laughs> there's that side of the family, and then there's the Russian Jewish third generation immigrant side, which are very much clashing culturally. And my inheritance clashes a lot that way. So it's really interesting. But so this really resonates what you're describing. This this review we do at the end of the day, or even in the beginning of the day. I have two tiny children that wake me up constantly. And so I wake up every morning and it's like the laundry list of 
all the toes that have been stubbed. Like, ugh, another night of a terrible sleep. Ugh, another night where, you know, so-and-so kicked me. Instead of, ha, huh, okay, fresh start, new day. <laughs> and then the same at the end of the day. Was anything all right? Or, <laughs> hey, check that out. I had a realization today and I didn't fall apart or whatever. And I think that is, there's so much kindness embedded in that, that I did not inherit <laughs> from either side of my family. <laughs> Maybe this would be a good little segue, unless you want to comment more about that. But I would love to invite you. I think our listeners would love to have a little meditation with you and maybe something along these lines that we've just been talking about. I'd be delighted to. I mean, many times meditative systems begin and keep returning to stabilizing our attention, getting a sense of an anchor for our attention and also some space, not dismissing thoughts and feelings or trying to make them go away, but just getting some space. That sounds perfect. You know, and it's from there that we can watch things come and go and, and get this kind of insight. So if you want to sit comfortably, close your eyes or not, wherever you feel most at ease. You can start by listening to sound, whether it's the sound of my voice or other sounds. It's a way of relaxing deep inside, allowing our experience to come and go. Even as we like certain sounds and we don't like others, you don't have to chase after them. Just relax. Let the sounds wash through you. And bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. Feel the earth supporting you. Feel space touching you. Usually we think about space touching us, uh, so or we think about picking up our finger and poking it in the air to feel the space. But space is already touching us. Bring your attention to your hands and see if you can move from the more conceptual level, like of fingers, to the world of direct sensation. Picking up pulsing, throbbing, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't have to name these things, but feel them. And bring your attention to the feeling of your breath on that same level. Just the normal, natural breath and feeling the sensations of it. Notice the place where you feel the breath most distinctly. Nostrils, chest, or abdomen. 
Bring your attention there and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. There's images or sounds or emotions or sensations arise. You can let them come and go. And just settle your attention on the feeling of the breath. something comes up strongly enough to kind of pick you up and whirl you away, you get lost in thought, spun out in a fantasy, or you fall asleep, truly don't worry about it. Once you realize you've been gone, see if you can gently let go and simply bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze and we'll end the meditation. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Listeners, feel free to go back a few minutes and pause and stay there for a while. (laughs) It's so important. I am so thankful to my young self that knew I needed to go towards meditation. Really is delicious. <laughs> I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with us what the word genuine means to you. It means a lot of different things. I would say genuine means authentic. To me, it means whole, like not fragmented. It means revealed, not hidden. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> no one's ever said those words before. This is why I love really? asking everybody. Yeah. Oh, I'm so curious. I know. It's it's really amazing. One of these days, I'll figure out how to make a huge painting of what everybody says. <laughs> I probably have about 100 definitions recorded from all over the world and all different voices. And it is amazing. This is why I ask everybody, because literally everybody says something different. I mean, a lot of people say authentic. That's kind of an obvious one. But There is more, I think, why I'm drawn to the word genuine. It's good to say. Feels good to say. Authentic feels a little airy to me. A little like out there. And genuine is like, ooh, in my belly. Feet on the ground. Like it has more messiness that's okay within it. Whereas authentic is like, oh, I'm going to put my best self forward. And I don't really believe in best self. Because I think we are who we are. (laughs) You had a core message for our listeners today. Well, since I already uh, proclaimed, uh, don't be afraid to ask for help, that's part of it. But I was doing an event the other day with Bob Thurman, who's just recently retired from being a professor of Buddhist studies at Columbia University. And he actually quoted Winston Churchill with, with all caveats about how colonialism and how 
incorrect it might seem, but I actually liked the quote so much, which is, when you're going through hell, keep going. And I thought for those people who are having such a tremendously difficult time, and there are many, keep going. I mean, there's all kinds of attendant messages. You're not alone and and so on. But I thought, yeah, like, why stop here? You know, like, yeah, let's keep going. Yeah, keep going. And there are others who you can join. Totally. We're never alone as we feel sometimes we are. Thank you. How can listeners engage with your work going forward? Probably the easiest way is my website, which is simply SharonSalzberg.com. Thank you so much for your wisdom, your insight, your joy, your love, and your meditation, and for being with us today. I'm so grateful. I mean, personally, it's like super thrilling to get to be with you, and I'm just so happy for our listeners to get to have a little nugget of you. (laughs) So thank you. Well, thank you so much, really. Thank you for having me. We hope that you enjoyed that conversation between um, these two brilliant women um, talking about moving through hell, <laughs> keep, <laughs> things to keep going as you move through hell. Sarah, one of the things that really struck me in the interview was when Sharon talked about um, how we sort of like move in and out of shame experiences. You had sort of like a a reaction in your throat that that felt like it came up out of your body. (laughs) I wonder if you can talk to us about what was happening for you, if you can recall. Oh, I can definitely recall. Uh, That was a huge moment for me. Um, You know, this conversation happened maybe five days after my, like, I don't know, visceral epiphany around recognizing shame and how I've been kind of suffocating with it for all these years, uh, decades. Um, You know, I'm a person who I've thought of myself for so long as such an optimistic person, as such a, you know, I'm I'm just going to go, go, go. And like, I'm, I'm doing, I'm creating, I'm present, I'm here, I'm good. And to suddenly sort of see how that was a cover up was uh, galling, you know, like the most, oh my god like I was in this space of 
suddenly thinking, oh my God, am I, have I been a sham all this time? Have I been lying to everybody? And that was the sensation that I had in my body when I went into that conversation. And so when she said, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's like waves. It's like you come in and out of it. It's not true that your entire life is a sham of shame. That's not true. And her saying that to me in that moment was another epiphany. Mm. It was a literal visceral, oh, okay. Maybe I am okay. <laughs> like, maybe I am okay. Whoa, maybe I am okay. And so in that moment, it was like, um, I don't know, it was kind of like a moment of healing for me personally, uh, you know, on camera as it were. But like, I literally in that moment, you know, I will always look back to that moment in that conversation because that was the moment where it hit me that I am okay. I am a person who has lived with shame that I didn't even know about, but I'm okay. This is the thing that you and I have kind of talked about, but haven't really talked about. Um, it, to me, there's something really profound about you being in conversation with this woman who is an elder mm-hmm. in your in your sphere, if you will, in the mm-hmm. world of mindfulness and meditation. Um, but I'm also really struck by your comments at the from the opening of the podcast, right? Really around um, trying to take care of people right? Trying to take care of your children and your family and the genuine community and really trying to foster things in them. What's really profound for me, as I listen to you tell these stories about your interview with Sharon, is that Sharon did for you what a mother does for people. Carlton. Mm-hmm. Right? She reflects back to you that you're okay. And that you're going to be okay, even though things may seem hard. And I can imagine that being really healing. Yeah. Yeah. Carlton, (laughs) you made me cry. (laughs) Again. Well, Well, I think it's really powerful. I think it's really, really powerful. Yeah. Right. I mean, we as a society um, don't necessarily, and she talks about this. Y'all talk about this, right? We don't always think in terms of the healing that we need as occurring in the context of our relationships. And I think that there is something that y'all just made really explicit about that. Mm. Healing occurs in relationship. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I think a big part of that is being seen, mm-hmm. being witnessed, being recognized, right. and that the experience of being seen is not what we think of when we think about the ego drive to be seen. It's not that. It's it's way deeper than that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like trying to get seen to get more podcast listeners. You know, it's not that. <laughs> it's, oh, I just exposed my tender center and I was witnessed. Mm-hmm. I was acknowledged, I was held, and I was soothed. Yes, I was comforted. Yeah, ooh, that's really powerful too. I think, you know, even as you talk about it, a piece in the conversation that she shared around um, asking for help or getting help or being somebody who was available to be helped, you know, right? 
Um, and she notes that, you know, we're all, she, she points towards socialization and maybe in a future conversation, we can unpack that a little bit more because I think it's really important for this conversation. But I think that a part of what she was talking about, I see when I do therapy with people all the time, right? The socialization around, not necessarily, not just that we have experiences of shame, but then we judge our responses to that shame, right? That keep us from actually being open to exploring that. Totally. Right. And I say to my clients regularly or frequently when it feels like we have stumbled upon something and they'll say something like, oh, but that's not really a big deal or, oh, we shouldn't do. I don't need to talk about that. Or it's not as bad as it sounds. Right. <laughs> um, I would just try to gently say to people, well, I wonder right now if we are judging your experience and the judgment is actually closing the door on our capacity for being able to explore that. Absolutely. I mean, the visceral experience of <laughs> kids screaming in the background. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Trying to record here. <laughs> the visceral experience <laughs> of being willing and encouraged mm. to be present to forgiveness, acceptance, awareness. I mean, the gentleness of that experience is very pervasive. Like, I think that is what healing is. And what I really long for our listeners to have as the big takeaway today is, yes, like when you're in hell, keep going. And why is that when we are willing to be present to our experience, what naturally occurs is love. What naturally occurs is softness and gentleness. And personally, you know, deeply personally, the various struggles that I've been going through recently with this epiphany and some other circumstances of my life, the only antidote I am finding <laughs> to navigate all of this is love. And it starts right here towards myself. Mm -hmm. And from there, then I can extend that out to everybody else. Mm -hmm. But it starts right here towards myself. Mm -hmm. And you know, all these years of practicing compassion, I might've missed the memo. <laughs> so I want to encourage our listeners to not miss that memo. Right. And I, I would just add, Sarah, as we come to a conclusion here, right, is that not only do we have to pay attention to the memo about compassion and grace that we can offer to ourselves, but I think that there is something really profound again that I think that Sharon was able to model that for you or to even so like that occurred between the two of you all, right? Yeah. So it becomes really important for us to not only think in terms of how do we offer it to ourselves, although that is a really important part of this that you learn how to, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, be gentle and compassionate and soft with yourself, it's also important to pay attention to when that gentleness or that softness or that grace shows up, even in a stranger, in a conversation yeah. that, that we can really um, learn that we're going to be okay. Yes. Yeah. Maybe over the next few weeks. Oh, it is February. 
maybe over the next few weeks, you know, thinking about love mm-hmm. in this different kind of way. That it's not just this external outwards facing thing, but what are the moments in your day-to-day life that remind you to turn in, remind you to offer that love towards yourself and then turn around and extend that out. But do you first. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, And maybe we'll, again, we'll talk about this maybe at some other point, but to recognize too that those experiences of shame will likely convince you that you are not worthy yeah. of that love. By likely, you mean they will definitely <laughs> <laughs> convince you and they will be successful. Right. right. However, mm-hmm. you can undo that. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe I could be living proof of that. Yes, because you are worthy. As are you, Carlton. As are you, listeners. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Today's episode would not have been born without the support of quite a number of people. First of all, we are delighted to thank Sharon Salzberg for graciously joining us for this potent conversation. Secondly, we'd like to thank each of the following folks who are superb friends of the podcast and have assisted in numerous ways, from editorial feedback to commentary to behind-the-scenes plotting to connecting genuine with their networks. Carlton Green, PhD of the University of Maryland, Christy Hausler and her team at Team Podcast, Lee Purcell of Lightspeed Publishing, Jim Infantino of Slab Media, the Best Year of Your Life Summit organizers for introducing me to Sharon, and Sean Schuldice, strategic communications expert and my close personal strategic partner and friend. Thank you. Genuine would not be what it is without you. For audio editing, I'd like to thank my lovely husband, Scott Robbins, for patiently tucking our daughters Odessa and Indigo into bed while I spend far too many hours writing, recording, and editing this for you. Oh, and thanks to Team Podcast for stitching the episodes together. For their generous gifts of music, we thank Jim Infantino for Habits and Plans, Sebastian Zell and Phoebe Wu for Motion, my darling cousin Joe Lipton for the Adele cover, Make You Feel My Love, and Jonathan Souza for End of Time. Thank you to those who lent their voices to say the word genuine, and Justin Michael Williams for defining genuine for us. Thank you to the inspiring, generous, and wonderful patrons and community members of Genuine. We would not be here without each and every one of you. If you are interested in joining the conversation, you can reach out to me at sarahlipton at genuinenetwork.org. If you would like to join our growing community at Genuine, be part of our conversation, learn from some of the world's most amazing hearts and minds, and contribute to the podcast, join us at genuinenetwork.org. We'll see you there. Now, more than ever, is the time to listen, spark, and ignite. Hey, this is Justin Michael Williams, and when I think of the word genuine, what I think of in my heart is the audacity to be fully and authentically and unapologetically 
in all your glory, in all your mess, and remembering that just because you want to grow does not mean that you're broken, baby. <laughs> mm, thank you so much for joining us on this potent journey today and for listening all the way to the end. I'm wondering, what struck at the chords of your heart today? Is there something that's particularly tickling your mind? Are you looking for other amazing humans to connect with on your own unfolding journey? Then I invite you to join us at Genuine, our online community dedicated to the journey of being, sparking, and igniting our true impact in the world. It's easy to join and you'll find a free 22-day guided audio meditation called the Positive Mind Challenge just waiting for you. Join us there and give yourself the opportunity to just be and you will be welcomed into a loving community. Simply go to genuinenetwork.org. And we will see you here at the podcast next week for another deep dive into the practice of meditation with me, your host, Sarah Lipton. Because, well, I mean, let's face it, it's not for no reason that I spent over 20 years on a meditation cushion, and I might as well share it with you. So please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Genuine wherever you get your podcasts. Now, go be who you are. Thank you.